Well, I get two shots at you this morning, and you don't have anything to say about it. I am really happy to be here with you this morning. It's really a pleasure. I, I know a lot of you, and some of you I don't know, and I wish I did, but I, I, I will know you a little bit better by the time this service is over. And thank you for, for letting me preach to you this morning. Uh, we just sang a song that should have encouraged your heart some. Now, how might that have happened? What, what was said or sung? Can you remember back a little bit? Can you even show us the last verse? So what is this right there? Where's that from? The fig tree? Remember? It's the end of a book where, where um, the prophet is, is saying, look, uh, these things may not be true. And in our case this last week, we came through a horrible week. If you just take uh, the fig tree may not blossom and, and go the whatever, and you finish a sentence yourself based on your fears of what you saw in the news last week. Um, Though all the fields should wither and worry fill the air, so he's, he's telling all these things it could be bad, then what happens? Yet. Okay, we're here to talk about the yet. Right? And that's why we, we, we talked about uh, Psalm 46, where uh, God is my refuge and strength. And so the yet is what gets us through a week like we just had. So good to be able to sing these songs and let them tell us the truth. Well, this morning is the, the third week of looking at the different means of grace that God has given us and provided us with along the way to bless us, to love on us and to keep our hearts from growing cold. The reason why I point that out is we can tend to think of means of grace, even if we call them disciplines, it's like, ah, we get a little bit nervous, don't we? And they can become duty. And when you think, well, maybe I need to do these in order for God to think I'm a good Christian. And we want you to think about it is that God is using these means of grace to to, um, keep you in his love and his goodness. God is committed, to say the very least, to uh, help us stand firm in the faith and keep us in the hope that we've been called to. Jude says, at the very end, to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. And so God, being the loving God he is, he provides us with means of grace so that this can be true. So this summer is leading us through the various means of grace that God utilizes in order to pour out his grace on us. And in each habit, we see a unique dimension of God displayed. Now, they all are interconnected in some way, but they are unique in their ability. Each of them has something that contributes to our faith and our growth in our our love for God and his love for us. Together, though, they make a a powerful Christian discipleship bond that's not easily broken. I came across this meme this last week on Facebook. People do not decide their futures. They decide their habits, and their habits decide their futures. I went, whoa. That's F.M. Alexander said that. We need to embrace all of these habits, then, and not just pick and choose the ones that seem to be favorable to us. In that line, imagine for a moment you were invited to Paula Dean's house for Thanksgiving uh, dinner. Now, 
I don't know if you know Paula Dean. She, she's the woman who loves butter. For, <laughs> for butter to Paula Dean in the recipe is like gasoline in a car. It's just absolute necessity. But she's a wonderful cook, and she'll, she has been dreaming up this fabulous Thanksgiving meal for you. Uh, of course, there's this turkey that she's going to uh, make sure is beautifully golden brown, but also her pecan pie. There's the sweet potato bread pudding that she is famous for, and apple and cranberry stuffing, and lots of other items on this table. And you walk in there, and she says, what'll you have? She can't wait to serve you up. And you say, well, I'll, I'll just have the turkey. I really like turkey. And she says, well, that's great. She serves you some turkey, and she says, well, what else? Well, actually, I think I'm just going to stop with the turkey. I'm good with the turkey. And she says, well, there's some corn souffle here. It's pretty awesome. No, thanks. I don't really particularly care for anything with corn in it anyway. I'll pass. Well, how is Paula feeling at this point? She's disappointed. She's been looking forward to serving you this fabulous meal, and you're sticking with the turkey. So you're limiting her delight, and you're also squelching your own delight, aren't you? And just so we need to not pick and choose this summer the uh, habits of grace that are you know, right up our alley uh, and tailor-made for our personality, the ones we prefer, uh, and the less glamorous ones, well, maybe not so much for me. I'll pass. And by not embracing the whole meal, then we, we're, we're cheating God's delight, and we're squandering the means that he has offered us to keep us strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I want to add one more thing here. If you're a, a person here this morning who's visiting, but not a follower of Christ, this morning can be a morning where you can take of this meal that we're talking about. Even this morning, you can say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I ask your forgiveness, and I welcome you into my heart. And and want you to be my Lord. I don't even know exactly what that means, Lord, but let's, let's do this. That can happen this morning. And you can partake of this meal we're talking about. And it truly, would, for you, would be a Thanksgiving meal if you would do that. So don't stay outside. You don't need to. Now, what are these habits that uh, are key to our spiritual health? A couple weeks ago, Randy Grundyke began by helping us to think about the Bible that God has given us. The Bible talks about itself as being living and active. Uh, it penetrates, it says, to the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is a mirror. Uh, it's God speaking to us. It encourages us. It exhorts us. It rebukes us. It corrects us. And beautifully, we encounter God in it. Then last week, Eric Christelman talked about prayer. He showed how it's linked to worship. Uh, that they flow together beautifully. In fact, he gave us, I believe, an exercise to uh, take a passage of Scripture and begin to pray it together. Uh, those two items and uh, kind of link our, our time in the Word and our praying together in a way that we kind of do both at the same time. I hope you discover that. I do that all the time the way I have my quiet time. And it's been a tremendous blessing to me. But prayer is so important. Uh, Samuel Zwamer was a missionary to the Islamic world in the early part of the 20th century. He wrote a book on prayer that I love and said this, that the Christian on his knees is a king and priest unto God in his universe. And the inner chamber becomes a gymnasium for the soul. 
The effort to realize God's presence in his world stretches the sinews of our faith and hardens its muscles. We believe because it is impossible. Prayer invigorates the will, purifies it, confers decision on those that waver. It gives energy to the listless, calmness to the fretful, sympathy to the selfish, and largeness of heart to those who are narrow and provincial. Beautiful. And so you can see why we would call prayer a grace of God, for him to do that for us in prayer. Well, today we get to think on worship, which has uh, fallen to my lot to present to you, and it, of course, is close to my heart. We could spend, like we could with prayer, uh, all summer talking about worship, and so we find, we find ourselves needing to narrow it down in some way, and I'm using uh, just a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 14 to begin that help to limit it for us in a helpful way. So let me pray for us and we'll begin that. Lord, we do pray for ears to hear and hearts to welcome the truth. Uh, Would you be teaching us and changing us as we listen through your spirit, we ask. Amen. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 is uh, helping the church at Corinth to think through some items of public worship that need some help, to say uh, it simply. And part of his concern is that tongues has taken over uh, and is something that the church is enjoying to the exclusion uh, of, of other items, and so he speaks to it um, in this chapter. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And so Paul is concerned that that not be the case. He doesn't want the mind to be unfruitful. So what shall I do? He says, I will pray with my spirit, and I'll also pray with my mind, and I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my mind. Well, this is really helpful for us as we begin this morning because Paul is stating here there are two key ingredients in worship, the mind and the spirit, and the intention is, of God is for these to be a dynamic duo to work in tandem so they can lead to God-honoring worship. First, Paul points out that the head must be active here. He wants it to be part of worship. The mind is a vital ingredient to worship. And thinking about God and thinking about what he has done, as we'll see here in a few moments, is the basis of our worship. It grounds our worship. There was a Puritan maxim that, quote, all grace enters by understanding. And J.I. Packer said that the Puritans, uh, for them, the only way to to the heart ran via the head. But worship, of course, is not all head, and Paul is bringing some balance here in 1 Corinthians 14, that if the emotions are kept out in the foyer, we limit worship, we stunt it. And he goes on to argue for a dance between the head and the heart. And hopefully that took place this morning as we were singing and thinking through Scripture and prayer. Jonathan Edwards is somewhere up in heaven saying amen to this. He said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. And when those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than those that only see it. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory, both with the mind and with the heart. And when the mind and the emotions are working together in tandem, we are truly blessed and God is more fully worshipped. And the experience that we have in worship becomes transformational. And this is the kind of worship that we do strive for here at Grace. And sometimes the pendulum can swing too far 
in the heady or it can swing too far in the emotional. And it's always a challenge to figure out a way what that balance would be. But we try to encourage the mind and to encourage the emotions to respond. And when this happens, gladness and joy of heart can be a result. And we can be physically and spiritually transformed. Well, we need to see this pattern in Scripture, and it's all over. Once you, once you have eyes to sort of see this pattern, it's hard to not spot it. But we're going to look primarily at Psalm 92 this morning in the time we have remaining, the first five verses, and see how these emotions play off the mind in a beautiful dance with dramatic results. You have your Bible, Psalm 92, verses 1 to 5. It is good to praise the Lord. We could probably stop and just let that be the sermon we're talking about means of grace. The grace of God comes through these means to us. So immediately the psalmist is saying, it is good to praise the Lord. It's good. The Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night to the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord, how profound your thoughts. So I'd like three truths to come out of this passage for us this morning. One is, worship involves the head, the mind. Two, worship engages the heart, the emotions. And thirdly, beautifully, wonderfully, worship reinvigorates the spirit. God created us with the capacity to worship him. We were made in his image and, and informed Rational praise is our unique privilege. Francis Quarles, who was a poet, uh, little known in the 16th century, said this. He said, mankind alone is made to serve the Lord in all his ways and to be the trumpet of his praise. And we spend all day, if you think about it, trumpeting something, don't we? We might trumpet a, something as, uh, as like a cat video. Or we might trumpet a movie we just saw or a, a song we just heard. Uh, we might trumpet a video we just made, uh, a book we've just read, a church that we attend, a school that we love. Or we're very good at trumpeting ourselves. But the prophet Jeremiah had this to say about that. He said, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. And so when we trumpet, when we boast, it's not in ourselves or our accomplishments, it's boasting in the Lord. And in corporate worship, we become, as it were, a brass section, bragging, boasting on the character of God and what he's done, as we'll see in Psalm 92. So let's look a little bit more closely at Psalm 92. What kind of boasting do we see here? We see that boasting involves, worship involves the head, the mind, and first of all, that means boasting in the character of God. Where do we see that? Verse 2, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. Every page of Scripture reveals something about the character of God, doesn't it? Genesis 1, we see that he's all-powerful as he sets the stars in place. We see his holiness in the garden as Adam transgresses and his sovereign plan is set in place. 
We see his mercy with Noah as his wrath is expressed in the flood. He's personal to Abraham. With Jacob, he's patient. With Joseph, he's faithful. And even to, in Egypt, he doesn't forget his promises to the Israelites. With David, he's forgiving. He's loving through the sacrificing of his own son, Jesus. He's, he's self-existent, the God who always is, the great I am. He's all-sufficient, just, never-changing, eternal, good, always present, always wise, always knowing, God in three persons. And in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul is reflecting on the immense patience that Jesus has shown with him, he bursts out and prays, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The character of God. We boast in it. So boasting in God's character is, is a key in worship. But also boasting in the acts of God, what he's done, is also a key. Look at Psalm 92, verse 4. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. Psalm 126 is one of those short bursts of praise that flow out of God's specific acts. We're going to read just part of it in a moment, and it's very short, but you'll notice how the mind and the heart work together to produce joyful, boasting worship. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Why don't you say this last line with me? The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. This is deliverance from captivity that they're celebrating here. And it's the source of the praise in this psalm. Could have been any number of rescues that God has done for them and worked on their behalf. And as they think on what was and what now is, notice praise is awakened and their emotions are combining to proclaim the truth of God and what he's done for them. God has gotten them safely through their trouble. Israel had experienced divine wrath, and now they're experiencing divine favor. And look at the result in this worship. Laughter and joy become the dominant emotions of this psalm, appearing five times. Their return from exile has fueled their praise. And there's an evangelistic component as well. The heathen, the nations around them are watching, and they almost seem to take the truth of what God's done and place it in the mouths of the redeemed. They give them the line that we just had, we said together. And it made me think about uh, your neighbors around here. They're watching. They're watching this church on the second floor of this Methodist church. Uh, does what they see of God make them want in? Are they proclaiming the truth because of what they see? May that be true. We see this same pattern take place in the Red Sea deliverance. Remember in the Red Sea, uh, God... Uh, is leading his children out of Egypt, but they're backed up against the Red Sea. The army, Pharaoh's army, has crushed them against this, and all night long the light shows on one side, and uh, Israel is in, uh, the Egyptian army is in the darkness as the waters are parting. God's drying out the riverbed, the seabed, so they can cross, and then when the Egyptian army goes in there, they're drowned. Well, what was the first thing that Israel did on the other side of the Red Sea? They celebrated their deliverance. Exodus 15 is a song that we have permanently 
in our repertoire, which they embedded uh, as they thought about God's salvation miracle. Now, we're going to read part of this together. And as we do, I'd like you to notice the bragging, the boasting. They are incredulous. They're almost even giddy over what God has done. What God, they seem to be saying, what God does this? And as they rehearse their deliverance, notice that adoration for God then grows. Let's recite these words responsively. I'll begin. The enemy boasts that I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But, you were there? But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfading love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall on them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people you bought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands have established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. So this pattern that we see here in Exodus is a pattern that we need to imitate. We need to cultivate the habit of, of sitting and pondering God's gracious activity in our lives. God's at work all the time. Ask him for special eyes to see just exactly what he's up to so you can praise him. Sometimes we can't see the whole picture, but God can give us ways to give him praise. Ask him to be so specific that you can't miss it. Let's spend just a moment right now, and you wander back over this week, some emails, some phone calls, some conversations, where you saw God in some way encourage you, strengthen you, help you, provide for you. What was it? And thank him for that, just silently in your heart. We thank you, Lord, for being a God who acts. Give us eyes to see and a mouth to praise you, we pray. Amen. So Psalm 92 is helping us to see that there's a pattern for biblical worship. We're boasting in the character of God first and then combining with his deeds what God has done forms a strong foundation for our praise. And our worship is, is fact-based. It's not an, just emotional frenzy. But if we were to stop with just reciting it, uh, we would be short-circuiting the full potential of what God has for us in worship. So let's continue to look at Psalm 92. It's so helpful to us. We see, starting in verse 4, the emotions be, begin to be awakened and come alongside. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. 
So what do we see taking place here? We, the character of God and his deeds are pondered, and there's an emotional buy-in. And then we see gladness and joy of heart start to break out. As we think on the greatness of God, we, we get our perspective back. And our confidence in God's sovereignty then grows. We saw in uh, Exodus 15, uh, as the Israelites were thanking the Lord for the Red Sea deliverance, they began to think about the future. And suddenly they had confidence in the future because of what they'd seen God do in the past. So we see this emotional buy-in taking place. And as we think on the greatness of God, we get perspective. Let's look at verse 6 and 7 of Psalm 92 and see what happens for them. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass, and boy, did we see that this week, and all evildoers flourish. They will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. And so here's the perspective that comes as they think on God's greatness, his goodness, his character, and the acts that he does on our behalf. So the psalm here becomes like a locomotive getting up a full head of steam. And the coal in the steam engine is the truth of who God is and what he's up to. And that truth, as it passes from the head into the heart, the heart does what it's designed to do. It allows the steam of our emotions to say amen to the truth, propelling our worship. And we see that often in Scripture. I was thinking of another example just in Romans 11. Paul is thinking on the future of the Jews and how the Gentiles have been grafted into this salvation tree and how there's coming this glorious, mysterious climax that we don't really know exactly what, what it is, but it's something amazing. And Paul gets caught up in this wonder, and he can't help himself. And so chapter 11 ends with, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Amen. Well, in case you checked out for a little bit, which I know happens in a sermon, uh, we're talking about worship involving the head, the mind. Then it engages the heart, the emotions, and it reinvigorates, thirdly, the spirit. We see that God has this sequence in mind for us as a grace. The habit of worship is a grace. And then that brings us to the third point with Psalm 92, which is that our strength, our spirit, is reinvigorated as we worship. God has designed it in such a way that as he gets glory from our praise, it's true that as we enter into worship in this way, he sees to it that our spirit is reinvigorated. We see that in verses 4 and 5 again. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. The psalmist here is glad as a result of reflecting on God. He is singing joyfully 
And he sounds like Paul, actually, in uh, Romans 11. How great are your works, Lord? How profound your thoughts. So we are transformed as we worship. When we ascribe credit and glory and honor to him who's done so much for us, our wonder increases. And as we praise, our delight grows and is completed. C.S. Lewis pointed this out wonderfully by saying this, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. We delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. I'd love for that to be the mark of how we worship here at Grace. We do attempt each week to, to prepare and spread a meal before you of great truths of who God is, and we try to highlight a theme that will best prepare your heart for the sermon. So look for the theme in Scripture and the prayers and the songs and, and use it to talk back to our God and praise Him. Fight to stay focused. Be brave and pray out when asked for uh, often we'll ask for prayers, and, and uh, often, even this morning when, when we were doing this, I know that already when we, we prayed this morning, there were many of you who had, we had just sung 10,000 reasons, and I know that every one of you had some reason uh, to actually pray out. And that tends to bless us as a congregation. So show courage. I know some of you have never prayed out before, and God powerfully uses our prayers in a public context. So be encouraged with that. Uh, the songs that we sing are intended to enable you to sing as an emotional response to the truth that you've th just thought about. So sing with gusto and don't hold back. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? All that is within me. So it's, it's, it's everything. It's, it's, it's like you're at a game and you're cheering on your team when they're on the five-yard line. It's, it's like that. Well, it's been so good to think about these things this morning. There's a table over here, and it's such a, a privilege. If worship involves remembering, and it does, and recalling and boasting and rejoicing, then we have an amazing opportunity this morning to climax this service with the taking of the bread and the cup, as Jesus encouraged us to. The Lord's Supper is a boasting in God and what he's done in Christ. So as we prepare to take these two elements this morning into our bodies, let's, let's be reminded of the praise that's now taking place in heaven. I'd like us to think for just a moment about chapter 5 of Revelation. Because there we see the same kind of worship taking place that Psalm 92 showed us and Psalm 126 showed us. How so? And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You were slain. There's the cross being sung about. There's the act of God, of Jesus dying in our place. There's atonement there. There's forgiveness. The blood of Jesus paid the debt for our sin. And, and beautifully, it's embedded in the hymn of this song that's going to be sung for all eternity. Talk about the deeds of God that he has done. This one is the greatest. And then John witnesses the praise, the thunderous, glorious worship of a numberless host of angels in a loud voice around the throne. Why don't you say these words with me? Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen. 
Well, in just a moment here, we're going to take communion together. If you haven't taken communion here at this church, the way we do it is you'll come up to the front and uh, tear a piece of bread off the loaf. And that person will say, Christ's body was given for you. And then as you dip that into the cup, that person will say, Christ's blood, uh, blood was shed for you. So why don't the two servers come up now and, and we will prepare our hearts to come forward and take the communion. The taking of the bread and the cup in Jesus' way of helping us enter into his death and our life. We taste of the bread ripped from the loaf and we, we drink the juice that signifies the blood that was shed. And we take these elements into our body and we're fed. And our faith is solidified. Our hope is fueled. And our excitement grows as we anticipate the marriage supper of the Lamb. When, as blood-bought members of Christ's bride, spotless and white, we will sit down at last together to feast forever with the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. As the Lord leads you, come forward, would you, and take of the cup of the bread.